0: Welcome everyone, my name is Patricia Rosvora and I'm the host of Kitchen Conversations, a platform to speak about contemporary art from so-called Eastern Europe. In each episode you're going to be introduced to one artist, sometimes also a collective, whose visual or activist practice sheds light onto the complex former socialist region with all its histories, cultures, languages, foods, but also traumas and their inevitable contemporary consequences. The podcast is a fully independent platform existing since May 2020. If you enjoy the monthly conversations, you can support me via Patreon or share the episodes with your friends or via social channels. Today on the podcast, Kenneth Lekko, painter and visual artist based in Berlin and originally from Tallinn, Estonia. On a great December day, we met in his Weisensee studio, Northeast Berlin, to chat about his paintings, art education, the big art world and the history of Estonia. Let's begin.
1: Hello, everybody.
0: Hello, Kenneth. Welcome to Kitchen Conversations.
1: First podcast.
0: First podcast of yours. Yes. So we are here now in your... Amazing studio, which I really like, and I was here already once, so I'm happy to be back. You work here and you live here.
1: I do, yes. I recently found the on the website actually, they have the history of the building. So it used to be like a built for a factory, I guess, and then during the war, the Second World War, then we were making some bombs and stuff. <laughs> But then, Like
0: a factory for... F- okay.
1: Somehow, but it was like reorganized for this. It wasn't built for this purpose. Mm-hmm, it was mm-hmm. built to for some other type factory. I don't remember which exactly. But then during the uh, GDR times, it was like the uh, Stasi headquarters or like headquarters of the area or something for like 30 Stats, years or so. Statsische
0: Heidt. Yeah. Heavy history. Heavy kinda. history.
1: And then when the wall came down, they found like a warehouse full of grenades and machine guns and whatever being stacked here illegally so
0: and now it's just like an artist's uh, yeah, studio place
1: interestingly like half of the building is like the House of the vicency area and then the, the other part is uh, okay, supposed to be a culture hub for creatives yeah
0: so were you like this kid who always loved to draw and paint and then <laughs> you became an artist or what the, what uh, was the journey to become an artist for you
1: it, it really was an accident for me it was the opposite I mean obviously kids like to draw but
0: not everyone actually
1: yeah but when you're when you're like three you know so like obviously my mom can pull like a picture from a photo album and be like yeah I was made to be an artist Just <laughs> yeah, look yeah, at it, yeah. you know but not really like through school I hardly had any I was interested in culture later in high school but more in like reading poetry and movie studies. And then as many young people do in my uh, late teens, I fell into uh, existentially uh, questioning the meaning of everything. So, got rather depressed actually, even, uh, and was just staying at home, just staying in bed. And my mother was going to this like a hobby drawing class after work, like People's University it was called. Mm-hmm. And one day she just told me like, oh, like you're not doing anything. Maybe you just come join me. <laughs> For some reason I did, and then from there on. I got some praise from the teachers. I had a strong hand and whatnot, but I was basically there making drawings with like forty-year-old women. <laughs> so. <laughs> so, how
0: were the classes? Did they actually build you like a still life, and you had yes, to yes. do it? Yeah, yes, yes, yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. Like coal and pastels, and then we would have Classic like flowers kind of. and plates and dogs or whatever.
0: <laughs> so it made you happy to it, draw
1: somehow. Yes, and then uh, and then they opened the. Uh, I think it was last year in high school, and then the. Uh, application for for the art school was somehow earlier than for all the other universities so I somehow jumped in and uh, accidentally I suppose got accepted and then that's how it started but at the beginning of school I was very I needed to really catch up because I didn't know anything so I was like
0: like technique wise as
1: well like art anything wise I was like Studying art history from YouTube. <laughs> like, yeah, and no, yeah, it's yeah. No, no like Picasso, basically. <laughs>
0: <You know? laughs> or Van Gogh. Yeah. In retrospective, Kenneth thinks that entering an art academy without any predefined Art style or ideas about what art should be made him more open-minded and quicker to develop. The moment of realizing that anything you do could become art was definitely a liberating one. Back then, the Estonian Art Academy in Tallinn was a rather traditional one, concentrating on the classical approach to art making. But there was also space for the conceptual approach. And from rather early on, Kenneth knew he wants to become a painter. His very defined painting style developed while creating work and is inspired, uh, very broadly speaking, with the life around us. He also likes to define his artwork in the framework of lowbrow or lowbrow art that was an underground visual art movement that arose in LA, in Los Angeles, in California in the late 60s and was a populist art movement with cultural roots in the underground comic, punk music, tiki culture, graffiti, street art, and so
1: on. What you would call maybe like low, low lowbrow or like not considered high art type things, like cheap decorations or like stuff you... Kitsch, kind of. Yeah, somehow kitsch to take elements from like high culture, low culture, and mix it up and, and give it like a different direction a bit. Also like material uses, like I use a bunch of like glitters and neons and, you know, stuff that's maybe like a punch in the face a bit, you know.
0: It's also kind of special i think that you paint on found canvases found materials. so not necessary canvases but uh, surfaces that you found somewhere
1: well a bunch of these works here are like i have stretched the canvas on like wooden panels i think this is what you're talking about it started exactly, in yeah. berlin when i when i moved initially with just like my suitcase with not a lot of money uh, people are throwing all their like old furniture out so i started like collecting these wooden panels of Ikea cupboards and, and whatever and then using these as old windows. But I would like break the window and then use the use the window frame as a stretcher for, for the canvas.
0: Is this something uh, new for you? Like to see so much like furniture trashed on the streets or?
1: I'm right sure. I, I guess in Estonia we don't have this uh, tradition of like just leaving stuff out in front of your door for people to take definitely but at the same time maybe back in Estonia I wasn't like walking around with you know with my eyes open when I'm (laughs) anywhere in Berlin I'm like ah there's a panel then I go check what condition it's in and like remember sometimes and then go back later take it home so
0: you have to carry a lot
1: I work liferando on the side so don't tell my boss but sometimes I can use the big bag to (laughs) (laughs) to
0: carry the panels So while studying in Estonia, and here a quote, young kid with big ambitions, post-Soviet with American dreams, Kenneth wanted to live in a bigger city. Cultural influence with the idea of the big world, with infinite possibilities, he initially wanted to move to the US.
1: I guess my parents' generation was mainly the one that, you know, they went to Finland to see how the Western people lived when they were invited or like however the, the policies were back then to see, like, a supermarket where the shelves are full and coffee and bananas and all the cliche things. So I was somehow, like, brought up in this and, like, my father is, like, a big fan of Elvis and...
0: <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> <You know>?
1: <laughs> <laughs> so I guess Americans, at least it seems to me, you don't have to shy away from ambition, whereas in Europe sometimes it's, like, looked down upon to be too ambitious, you know? Mm. It's built up in like a a little bit different understanding of freedom, right? Like it's up to you if you make it somehow, but there's like no net, you know? So it's up to you if you didn't get a good health insurance, go fuck yourself, you know? (laughs) Yeah.
0: yeah. It's the ironic part that a lot of people, I guess, maybe don't know or like just have the idea from Hollywood how how everyone can make it in the U.S. Anyways, well, we are in Back Berlin. To Estonia. <laughs> <laughs> Back to Estonia and Berlin.
1: Yeah, yeah, I was lucky, very lucky to... Because uh, in, in the UDK, you work under a certain professor. And the professor I was uh, somehow assigned to work under, Thomas Tipp, mm-hmm. was uh, very supportive to my way of working. Because I wasn't really... I, I can definitely say that I didn't take the most of my university years in terms of like what the university has to offer. Cause back then I really wanted to do things my way, and I, I had my studio where I was living, so I didn't really use the school studio. I went to the class meetings and did some courses, but, but didn't use the workshops as much as I could. Didn't build like as many contacts maybe as I. Didn't as use I, the community as I, let's yes. say of an arts. Co- but at the same time, like a lot of the, uh, a lot of professors really want to like. I would just say, like, chase around and be there and tell you what you should do. Uh, but but Thomas was very, uh, like, he held me on a long enough leash. So he, he saw, like, my character and, and, and appreciated it. So thank you for that.
0: <laughs> That's sweet. So it's because once we were talking, I remember last time I was here, about, like, do we actually need art schools? And do art schools help us as artists to actually, yeah, make the living with art and also kind of be happy with what we do and really be persistent in like becoming a professional artist Mm
1: -hmm. i guess the art school kept me on the track that i'm going to be an artist but in terms of uh, like literally teaching me techniques or or theory i guess it could have but i guess i somehow avoided that (laughs) intentionally or unintentionally so i guess i i would have come up with the similar type of work, if I had the uh, stick-to-it-ness. Mm-hmm. But I guess the university in this term, like supported the fact that I am on this path and I am working towards being an artist. Maybe doing it with a side job in my dad's garage, maybe I would have like, given up earlier. Or, mm-hmm. I don't think so, but I guess for some people, definitely.
0: Mm. And you're also like a very hard-working artist. I mean, you work a lot and you kind of produce a lot. Is that the right impression I'm getting?
1: Yes, I mean, we're sitting here, surrounded by a bunch of artworks. So how many paintings
0: of yours are in this room, you would say? (laughs) Like 200? A couple
1: hundred, more, I guess. More? On this wall, there's 20. My process is very, like, hands-on. So I can't just, like, sit and think of ideas. I just need to start. I hardly sketch. So I just, like, jump into it. And then the ideas and the connections, like, come through the process. So that's why I somehow have to keep producing is cause that's like the way I develop and the way I, uh, it's just my process.
0: So how, how, how do you get inspirations?
1: I mean, internet culture, maybe it's too specific, I guess, like culture in general, or like mm-hmm. I would like to say that it's a lot of the work mostly is just about life, but it's a bit of a cliche answer, but it's a lot of references to like things happening in my own life, happening to people around me, uh, Happening in society in some ways.
0: Last time I was here, uh, we were speaking that yeah, maybe you could be on the podcast. Then I was telling you a little bit what I do here. That it's all about like Eastern Europe and political art. And you said like you're not a political artist or you don't do politics. So, uh, are you sure?
1: I think some artists have like tainted the words in in my mind a little bit. Like Mm -hmm. uh, like there's, there's ways of like making a comment on society as an artist, and then there's ways to preach your opinion. And I think art should maybe more leave it a little bit open. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. So there is space for being an activist artist, but I definitely wouldn't include myself in this space. Um, I try to get people to think about things, obviously, as I guess every artist wants to. Mm -hmm. And uh, for me, definitely, it's more maybe personal, rather than, than political, but yeah. Personal
0: is political, right? I know right? this, I know this. <laughs> but yeah, so I don't I consider
1: mean... myself as a political artist, but a lot of people see things in my work and references that can definitely mm, see, be seen as comments on, on society and what's happening, so...
0: Most of Kenneth's works include image and text and speak about various aspects of human nature and social structures. Some of the themes I recognize when looking at his art are love, desire, loss, death, addiction, mental health, power. His paintings play with various recognizable symbols, among many those from mythology and religion. He says... I think my interest in mythology and these symbols come from the fact that times change, yet human nature with our struggles and challenges that need to be overcome stay quite the same. Of course, technology changes and science develops, but it feels to me that on the personal and emotional level, a huge part of the human experience tends to go through repetition. His subconscious use of medieval images come also, as he says, from growing up in Tallinn, surrounded by the well-preserved medieval architecture of the old town and the stories of medieval life, the glory and suffering of it. Despite not being particularly religious or growing up in a religious environment, he often uses uh, those symbols in his art and depending on the context, they are being interpreted in different ways. For example, he told me about uh, this one painting of his Uh, where he painted a monk praying towards a huge middle finger and the image uh, was shown in the German TV but uh, it was actually blurred out due to uh, blasphemy and yeah, he didn't actually intend the picture to be particularly like a point about religion Uh, rather, yeah, to to show what people value in a kind of symbolic way nevertheless, since it was shown in Germany um, where quite a big part of the society is religious, it was actually a seen in this context and treated as something offensive.
1: And it's not so radical perhaps to mm, to say things most people agree with, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so
0: <laughs> mm. yeah, there is something to it for sure. <laughs> it's
1: like holding up a sign I'm against war. I guess most people are, you know? Mm. So who are you preaching to?
0: Yeah. I guess you should maybe act no, it, how you it, are against just, just, and not it No, it's just the thing is like there's it, there's right.
1: more nuance to it, I guess, than than just like a. I don't know. I want to step on anybody's toes here,
2: but
1: mm. th- there's more nuance than just like a direct statement. You know, like you can. You can write a. A book, about a certain topic, in a way that it's uh, using metaphor rather than boom, boom, boom. That's what I mean, you know.
0: Kenneth did have strong ideas about the art world and how the contemporary scene looks like. I was curious to hear his take on the professional art scene and knowing his concern about working with galleries and institutions, wanted to hear more about where those worries come from and talk about some possibilities of overcoming it.
1: The monotony of a lot of galleries are showing what is somehow... In fashion at the moment and that there's not a lot of stuff that's Stands edgy out. or says something.
0: Yeah, I guess that's always the case. Also, like if you're independent, you're just independent and you just count on yourself. But once you work with someone, you have to compromise also on what you produce. Definitely. And how but also, you but show also yourself I would think
1: like uh, like recently I've been thinking about this. Like uh, an alternative band. Uh, getting like a record deal actually gets their music uh, in front of more people, right? So you can decide to like be cool in your friend's garage or... So I would say like the same thing the same argument that I had with the galleries like I, we can we can sit here and be like all the music on the radio is shit and we have cool music or we could be on the radio and like find a way to like get the cool music on the radio then so I, I think we should... Uh,
0: totally. Yeah. Not saying yeah, yeah. that
1: I'm the coolest artist, but like we should maybe find ways as artists as well to get the kind of stuff that we like uh, into like the these institutions or, or galleries or whatever instead of like just turning our backs and being like, We're cooler than mm. you, or like we we don't fit or you know.
0: Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I think that's also like my my strategy, let's say, or like with certain uh let's say uh, podcast or music players that my podcast is on. I don't really support their politics, especially the big ones. Mm-hmm. But then I'm like, okay, but at least I can have my podcast there and people can hear me criticize those I platforms. you saying, On right? those platforms. Yeah. I guess it's similar with fundings, like where artists get fundings, right? Often those are like problematic places which give the money and have the money, right? And... Either you just, like, not take the money and do a statement or take the money and use it to create some critique yes. on the whole system. But like,
1: like, for me as an artist, like, what's what's most important is, like, my art and that people see it and that people relate to it, right? So does it make more sense that I just have all these, like, 200 paintings here in my studio or would it make more sense if it was somehow on a wall where there was, like, a line outside to come see it, right? So obviously for an artist, I'm not going into politics here, but for just for an artist, a creator, it is important that your work is out See there and like yeah. appreciated or criticized or whatever, but like reacted to.
0: And it's funny because I feel this way of thinking that let's say art for the artists and we are so protective of like how our work is being seen and used is also a bit fault of the art schools. <laughs> or at least for me, you know, like my art school really made me so careful of speaking about money and like mm-hmm. making money with your art and showing, selling yourselves. And, and that's all where the things. American
1: thing comes, comes in, right? <laughs>
0: exactly, I was just thinking. Because like, that's a very... They have no problem. with that. I've never been that. to
1: America, but like it sounds like a very, somehow like a European approach that you have to be like, can't talk about money or like can't talk about like, that you like, want to be the best, or you know, like stuff like this, you know. It doesn't mean that you're putting anybody down. I just had a conversation with a friend of mine about about this that when I was younger, I used to consider like many other artists as my like rivals somehow. <laughs> it's just like I want to make it, you know. <laughs> and and they tell you that like okay, you, in art school uh, in Tallinn, they told us basically there was like thirty of us, and and the professor told us like maybe two of you are gonna be like artists uh, <gasps> making money or like ma- making a living as an artist. It's true though. And I was like, who's the other one? You know. So
0: <laughs> <laughs> good one. So somehow. So you have some of the American spirit. I in guess you, you know and that's good I mean
1: but coming back to the point with, with talking <laughs> to my friend because now I realize that it's we're not rivals we are we're, we're colleagues and it's uh, it's more like in terms of back to like music examples like I can make techno music and you can make punk music and it doesn't you know if both of us su- successful and make the best thing at what we are doing we're not like somehow stealing the other one's audience or you know can also be positive in a way that like oh they made something like Very cool that I appreciate how can I like also rise to the same level or like top that and then I guess the whole culture somehow moves in a a positive direction due to that.
0: And you also told me that you don't want to sell yourself as the Eastern European artist. (laughs) And now you're on the Eastern European podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I mean, of course, because your work is personal, It also includes like your Estonian experience in it, of course. But would you say like, would your art be different if you stayed, for example, in Tallinn and worked there?
1: That's a very good question. It's very difficult to answer. I remember when I was, uh, when I got the news that I can come to Berlin, uh, one of my professors told me that you think you're going to just go there and be like, you know, fit in, but, like, at the end of the day, you're still going to be the Estonian guy. <laughs> I was like, nah, of course not. But Sorrow in some circles, I mean, I am referred to as the Estonian, which is somehow cool to be the Estonian guy. <laughs> exactly,
0: yeah, sometimes <laughs> it's cool.
1: But, of course, it's weird. And uh, and hinting at, like, identity is somehow very re- relevant in the culture discussions these days. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I wouldn't say that I ever thought of myself in such a manner when I was back in Estonia, especially I was thinking of myself as like a Western artist. I think I was thinking of myself as. Uh,
0: yeah, I and, think that's the other thing. Once uh, you live so far away and you come back, like you see that you're also a bit yes. the outsider, right?
1: And uh, talking about the internet, like I am part of the generation that all already, I mean, we didn't have like phones when we were like, Kids, we could still play outside and all this, but but internet like was a part in our
0: early Going teens up,
1: already, yeah. you know. So, so I guess this was like a big connector of uh, of culture somehow. So, so I, I in, in immediately thought that I was like a part of like a wider happening rather oh, yeah. than just like my village here in the in the corner or somewhere.
2: Mm.
1: But now, being like living in uh, in Berlin for some years. You definitely get a bit of this um, like longing, or, or like I have an Estonian flag on the table here, and and like
2: uh,
1: <laughs> you, you start to think of your identity a little bit, like as uh, like you check news from home and mm.
2: and stuff
1: like this. So, which I didn't I didn't even consider like this before, like my identity is so strong. Uh, Burn any bridges here, but I, I guess in Estonia there's talking about the western tendencies and all this looks like in the main that's scene, where I'm going in the main scene at the <laughs> at the moment at least it, it is a little bit that we're looking up to like how people are doing it like abroad and and wanting to like make like a copy of a, of a copy of something mm. you could be sitting at a
0: terra, terrace bar, kind of, terrace bar
1: in in berlin with like built up cheap wood and like with nice lighting and a dj in the corner and you could be sitting in the same place in estonia and
0: but is this is that the language, nice maybe it's if nice right the language right? wasn't for people you living there. Is yeah
1: definitely no for sure I, I guess the thing came up between the two of us because I was talking about this other interview I did where somebody asked me if if I consider Tallinn to be the next Berlin <laughs> so that's where it came from and 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 I would I would prefer if uh, if Tallinn was the cool Tallinn not the next
0: Berlin something. number 2 you know Using the opportunity of Kenneth being the first Estonian on my podcast and one of the first artists from the Baltic region, I also asked some questions about history of Estonia, especially curious about the country's situation during the Soviet Union and in the period of the so-called transformation. My first misconception was the political status of Estonia during Soviet times. Unlike Poland or Hungary, for example, who were part of the so-called satellite states and so under the satellite hegemony of the Soviet Union, Estonia was annexed and occupied by the Soviet Union already in the 1940s.
1: So exactly, my mom has told me this story, but she was changing the Russian currency to the Estonian currency while she was pregnant, so I was like, the crazy, first generation yeah. of the of the new republic again. So it was crazy times, but I, you know, for me it was just you know childhood. I didn't like, but people were as in I guess most of the of the Soviet Union countries where everything had belonged to the state, and then all of a sudden was got privatized, right? So it was like a like a, Shockful, not a wild west, sure. but a wild east, you know, like mafia stuff going on. The the country didn't really have yet like a proper working police system <laughs> or you know, like a government system you know so it was like uh it was wild times but i guess like in, in like about 10 years they got it kind of under control but we had like a bunch of mafia activity and like people got like blown up on the streets and like pretty weird weird stuff looking but i can only look back to this from, from history, like news yeah. reports and stuff but for
0: uh, sure and w- like w- w- in school what do actually they teach about this period like the history books do they actually cover this part of the history or
1: when I was going to school I guess it was still too close of a history to to cover that in, in a history class mm. maybe they do now mm. I mean definitely seeing revolution and like all of these how we in the Baltic chain and all these things of course were, were covered but but not in terms of like how the uh, how played in the social and economical see
0: yeah I don't really know how to ask this but From, I mean, as you see, my knowledge also about this, although I work with these topics, is kind of limited. And I think also that's why I do this podcast, because all the stories of our separate countries are so different, but they are somehow put in all one pot and this all kind of mixes up. So that's why it's also valuable for me to have you and tell your kind of, yeah, part of what you know to kind of learn from each other as well. But my question or like what I know from like the different Baltic countries is that you had also like a strong Russification and yeah. a connection to the language and that's still like a very um, visible thing today.
1: Definitely like going back home now, I notice it more somehow than I did when I was living there that like, oh, so many people being But it also could be because like we have a bunch of refugees now from Ukraine and, and all that. But yes... Uh, the population of Estonia is more like one point three million, but I guess the population of let uh, how to say that politically correctly of Estonians, <laughs> Estonian speaking Estonians, then let's say is around like mm-hmm. I guess like either a million or nine hundred thousand. No, I think less than a million. So we have like one third of the population are non. I might be wrong with the statistics here, but somewhere around that. Again, I guess in Tallinn is like forty percent or so.
0: And that was because people from like Russia were coming during the Soviet Union times to work there and settle yes, there with their families like, or...
1: Yes, they, they were, well, yeah, I guess, imported as workers. So I, I, as I assumed during the Soviet Union the, to uh, demolish the national identity of places, they tried to like ship people across the Union so that they, uh, I don't know, to be yeah, basically to get rid of, like, uh, national identities and and have, like, this union identity idea. And uh, somehow, I mean, it's still, a. I am 30 years old, and uh, so Estonia is still, the new Estonia now is, like, still a very young country, and there's been, like, generation or two after this uh, social changes. So I wouldn't be, like, super um, gloomy about this, but you can definitely still see that there are, like, to parallel society somehow. Like, you you can live your whole life in Estonia speaking Russian, only basically bumping into people who speak Russian and can get by well, so...
0: But would you say, uh, I guess now, after the Fuske invasion is different, but would you say it was rather... Like, those communities were living next to each other in peace and it was rather, like... Somehow...
1: Ah, oh, that's difficult to say. Somehow, but there's definitely tension there. And the, I think the most of the tension comes, which is now being brought up again with the Ukraine war as well, comes from like a different reading of history. Because us as Estonians, we were occupied, right? But for the, for the Russian population, they their understanding of history is that they liberated us from the Nazis. So that we, you know... We should be grateful for, the, for this move, but after the so-called liberation, they didn't like let us live liberated. But they <laughs> made us join their empire, so to say. And us, like as a tiny nation, trying to maintain their language and culture. Uh, Obviously, there's like a dilemma there.
0: And can you tell a little bit how the situation of the country changed after like the the war now in Ukraine? So do you you said you have a lot of like uh, refugees coming or like came from Ukraine?
1: Yes, because uh, we had like a bunch of uh, foreign workers I think already uh, coming to Estonia to work from Ukraine. Because I think even though the living standards of like how would you say. The living standards compared to like how much you make and and how much things cost in Estonia is not so great. But so Estonians go to work in Finland, and I guess then Ukrainians come to work in Estonia. Similar or, to <laughs> <where> Poland, <laughs> yeah. It works. Mm. So we already had like a bunch of these people living and working there, and they could obviously bring their families. And then Estonia, as much as it could, uh, as a tiny country, uh, provided, uh, provided and, mm. uh, and 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 uh, let in the refugees. Of course, it's calmed down now. But at the beginning, I remember there was like. Like, all my friends were talking about, like, do we have to go to war or, like, how are you prep? Like, I didn't go to the military, for example, and I was like, fuck.
0: Do you have, Maybe like I should have. Yeah, we, Yeah, be- you have to. Aha, uh-huh, so you either do, it's like... It's compulsory. Okay.
1: But I weaseled my way out of it back then, being a...
0: Student or...
1: now, being a young artistically minded, rebellious fucking kid. So there is
0: ways to kind of skip it.
1: (laughs) I mean, yeah, if you have migraine and tell people it's way worse than it actually is.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right, but it's mandatory. Okay, I didn't know that. And I guess it's going to stay And in a weird way
1: now, like being a bit older, I somewhat even, uh, I'm not sure of regret, but when stuff like this happens, uh, like a full-scale invasion, you definitely reconsider that maybe it would be good to know what to do,
2: Mm. (laughs) you know? Because now
1: now I'm just a civilian. If I had, like, even, like, basic military training, I would know, like, where to go. I would know who to listen to or, like, you know, I would know how to assemble in a certain situation. I would know first aid. I would, like, know all these things, you know? Because once somebody attacks you, it is already a fight. It's not like you decide, okay, let's yeah. talk this through, you know.
0: I guess that's the whole thing also now in Ukraine and all this like pacifist movements. that That's the argument, right? Like we didn't choose for this. Someone yes, exactly. just attacked our homes and yeah. we just have to protect ourselves. Yeah, but I guess also the, the point here or like how I see it that the aggressor is really using strategies which are not new to some of our countries yeah. you know like we know this so maybe like start listening to what we were talking yes. you know <laughs>
2: yeah this
1: is definitely weird how uh how to say like the, the approaches have changed you know like mm. i remember i was when i was bringing up the fact that like germany with their like going green like isn't it a bit not so smart to like rely so heavily on russia
0: on the north stream too you, yeah
1: like mm-hmm. on the gas so like because, as I understand, we're closing down coal plants, which is great. But at the same time, Germany doesn't yet have the capacity to like create all its power with like windmills, right? So we're we we're getting it from Russia. And my question was more like, not in. So I wasn't even expecting a war or anything. I was like, what if they just decide to like turn it off or whatever, you know? It's a bit dumb. And then people were like, Oh, what are you talking about? Mm. <laughs> and then like half a year, it's just like boom, you know. So, so I guess yeah. P- people from the from the east definitely are a bit more uh, cautious about like dealings with Russia, you know. And that's not to say with Russians, but but as the the
0: federation, yes, yeah.
1: like the, the imperial mindset, whatever. Indeed, I have to point out, I'm I am no expert, <laughs> so <laughs> just in case.
0: For sure, but I think it's valuable, as I said, um, opinions, and I like to create knowledge from opinions and stories as a yeah addition to academic theory which <laughs> people can also read if they are into it yeah last but not least uh, just to come back kind of to your work and what's your we are now recording in december but the podcast will be out uh, first thing in january Ooh. so um, yeah what's your kind of ideas for the new year as an artist as in your practice like do you want to do some crazy big pieces or like super small ones which you see here in the back or topic wise do you think like this or you just go with the flow and create whatever comes
1: (laughs) as I said like uh, it's a very like process based uh, uh, style of working so I I guess I I do go where the art takes me somehow Mm. in terms of like uh like what i'm making but but plans definitely more like to professionalize the studio and like finally as i said i'm 30 now so it's like it's time to grow up a bit you know like get get my office in order and like work on stuff that i know i should have been working for a long time but i've been like postponing so some some background work that that maybe when you first think that you're gonna be an artist, you think you're just gonna be like painting in a studio, but that's actually like a lot of.
0: You have a lot of administration. A lot and of all administration, and,
1: and I still, I'm not very good at this, so definitely have to.
0: <laughs> but you, you have some good people helping you. I that's know very that. true.
1: Yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Rebel Art Management, shout out. <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> some little promo for them. Well, last but not least, a uh, classic question about food. You know that I just published oh, a cookbook. No. And uh, yeah, I collect recipes or taste. doesn't have to be a recipe, but something which you like from a place which is home for you. Favorite home food uh, that you could uh, share here on the podcast. All right,
1: but that's heavy. It has to be something my mom made, definitely.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, <laughs> There's this cake. I don't know how to like explain this in uh, in English even. I think she got the recipe from my grandmother, and like she always used to make this for my birthday and for my father's birthday. And I can definitely get you the recipe from her. Right after then, Amazing,
0: I have to then. Amazing, yeah. No, yeah. Cool.
1: But uh, I think there's like caramel in there, and then like what do you call like oats? Mm-hmm. I guess it's like covered in oats, like slightly fried or something.
0: After our conversation, I tried to Google an Estonian caramel cake with oats, but I couldn't find anything concrete. As it later turned out, the recipe was first made by the great-grandmother of Kenneth, who later shared it with Kenneth's mom. Her nickname was Mem, so the family simply called it Mem's Oat Caramel Cake. It was not only the taste of the dessert, but the whole story behind it that made it so special and unique. Right before Kenneth's birth on September 25th, his mother was preparing a party to celebrate the 25th birthday of his dad. That was supposed to happen the next day. Big party with uh, a lot of homemade food and lots of guests, as it was done in the 90s. The food was pretty much done and the only thing uh, that was left was Mam's oat caramel cake. So the mom uh, was working on the cake when she realized her water broke and instead of finishing the cake, she actually had to go to the hospital and give birth to Kenneth. Since then, the cake became a very symbolic thing in the family and was always there for either Kenneth or the dad's birthday
1: but like otherwise i don't know like the basic yesterday i was just going for like herring so i'm gonna make like herring with boiled potatoes and sour cream and like this somehow Ooh. like the basic basic stuff but it's you know a friend of mine told me that i'm cooking like very old school because i'm making like liver with potatoes <laughs> do you
0: cook here in your kitchen yeah i do yeah are you like a good cook
1: i don't know i can feed myself
0: <laughs> but you cook a lot
1: I do cook a lot, yes I, uh, I rarely eat out or order in so.
0: and do you have people then come over or you just
1: sometimes, but like I tend to eat like a lot of the dishes I make have meat in them and like a lot of people, especially in Berlin around me like tend to stay away from that so
0: I <laughs> fish, so you just I can, keep make fish, you know? I can make
1: fish for them but.
0: or cake <laughs> well get me the name of the cake, okay yes. and then I, will I have to
1: ask my mom and I'll get you the recipe too.
0: So. Well, thank you so much, uh, Kenneth. Actually, I wanted to say one more thing. I don't know if you know, but your surname in Polish means to be light. Light. Le- Lekko means All right. something light. It's All actually right. a very positive uh, word.
1: Okay, that's cool. That's yeah, and sorry. it's written
0: exactly the same.
1: Yeah? Mm-hmm. Okay, and and I have tried to check the, the background of the name. But i have no clue. It's like some people say it's Scandinavian, some people say it's like might be Polish. Us Estonians are like very mixed through history of like by being invaded, people traveling, like I have, like Russian, Baltic German, Scandinavian, like all types of a uh, of a of a mix. But with the name, I'm not sure. One thing I do know is that like apparently everybody in Estonia with this name are related, so it's like a very rare uh, uh, last name in Estonia. So not many of us there. <laughs> so happy holidays to you and happy new year to the listeners I guess
2: yeah
0: this was it for today. Thank you for reaching till the end of this episode. Don't forget to check out the show notes with references to things discussed on this episode. If you're into cooking, you can also have a look at the Kitchen Conversations cookbook, a collection of favorite home dishes recommended by the first 17 artists who appeared on the podcast. Stay well and we hear each other soon.